This episode is sponsored by Paleo Valley. Paleo Valley's meat sticks have been a lifesaver during this hot summer. Since they're shelf stable, I always have three Paleo Valley meat sticks in my bag at all times. It's also been perfect for my boys' lunch boxes. I love Paleo Valley's grass finished beef sticks and pasture raised turkey sticks because they support US family farmers that focus on regenerative agriculture. These meat sticks are from animals that have never been fed grains, soy, corn, or GMOs and have never been given antibiotics. The spices in these meat sticks are also 100% organic. The sticks come in five different flavors, and my favorite is the original beef stick, and my boys love the teriyaki beef sticks and the original pasture raised turkey stick. Paleo Valley's meat sticks are a perfect snack and, frankly, a great value without skimping on quality. Each stick is about $2 with our discount code, and it comes in a 10 pack bag. Make sure to support this podcast and head over to paleovalley.comslash CATG and use code CATG to get 15% off your first order. Thanks for listening and supporting the Cutting Against the Grain podcast. This episode is sponsored by Carnivore Cure. Carnivore Cure is a book, a work in progress plant database, and in the future, an intense group program. Carnivore Cure is meat based nutrition and the ultimate elimination diet. The Carnivore Cure book helps to break down science and provides a step by step elimination diet protocol. It also provides extensive nutritional information and support for a meat based diet. Carnivore Cure is rooted in evidence based nutrition with over 600 citations and over 250 colored graphics and tables. If you need assurance that a meat based diet is ideal, or if you need more in depth support to guide you, then this book is for you. The colored informationals and nutrition facts will make this book a reference for years to come. Make sure to get your copy on Amazon or at carnivorecure.com. Thanks for listening, and let's get back to the show. Laura and I are just going to be talking really candid. This is what this podcast is all about. It's one thing to say, I want to eat something else that's not meat. It's a whole other thing to say, you need to eat something else that's not meat. If you notice that you're Jumping from diet to diet. At a certain point, you have to wonder the only common denominator is me. Get outside, go for a walk, <laughs> get some vitamin D, breathe、yeah. some fresh air,、uh, and, and stay happy and healthy and, and take care of yourselves. Let's just have some real talk. <laughs> Welcome to the Cutting Against the Grain podcast. Hey guys, welcome back to the Cutting Against the Grain podcast. My name is Judy Cho and I'm here with my co host, Laura Spath. So today, let's just get right into the topic. We're going to do some rapid fire topics of should we track?、Um, this is going to contain many different aspects. And so I figure let's just kind of get right into it. You know, should we track in general? And、um, I, I think I'm of the opinion of it's a good idea that if you're starting a new diet, just to get a baseline of maybe blood work. Um, if you want to do a DEXA scan or hair minerals, we can talk about all of these different things later. But I think it's good to have a baseline so you can kind of see where you're going, even with your weight,、um, you know, using a tape measure and then getting your inches and all that. But at a certain point, we should let go of it too and not obsess over it because that's when we can get demotivated when we don't see the numbers improve in the way that we want. And so I don't know where your opinion is overall about tracking, Laura, but maybe if you can share a little bit. Yeah, I think it definitely depends on your context、um, and kind of how obsessive that you get. For me, I love, I do love weighing myself. And in a lot of ways, it motivates me. It keeps me on track. I like to weigh myself once a day. I don't get obsessive about it. If you did, I think that's a bad thing, right? So obviously, this could be said with everything.、Uh, I think that it's information is really valuable a lot of the times. When I was first starting out, I had very high, you know, I was insulin resistant. I had a high A1C.、Um, and I needed to understand what food was doing to my blood sugar. And so there was something that was very informative and educating to me about testing those things. But I also get to a point where I get a little too obsessed with like, what are my ketones and what is my blood sugar doing? So it is a balance. I think it's important. We're going to get into all of these different ways that you could track or test or measure what, what you're going through and what's going on with you.、Um, and I think that information can be a great thing, but、uh, it's always good just to check in with how are you reacting to that information. And I think we will 
dive a lot into it. So for me, I need a little bit of information, but I can't handle too much for sure. Yeah. And I mean, that's why there's that saying paralysis by analysis, right? So if you overdo it, um, and this can be really with anything, um, even if it's like trying to finish a book, right? So it's, if you overdo trying to perfect things, maybe you'll never get it out. So I, I agree with you. I think it's balance is really key. And so we'll talk about a variety of, I guess, aspects that you can track and measure and then see, is it worth it for you? So let's get right into the first one. The first one is um, a DEXA scan, which um, it stands for dual energy x-ray absorptiometry. So basically this DEXA scan, um, it could either measure fat, muscle, bone density, and it's considered the gold standard compared to any other type of measure. Now, it's not always super accurate, but for somebody that has maybe bone um, health issues in their family, so if there's osteopenia, osteoporosis in the family, it may be something good to measure. Um, and I know a lot of people use it for just measuring fat, but I, I know, Laura, you've done it recently. And like, what are your thoughts kind of on that? Would you do it? Would you recommend it? I hated it and I wish I didn't do it in the first place. Um, mainly because I, all my friends warned me, y'all warned me not to do it, but I did it anyway. Um, I was looking, hoping that it would be able to tell me what on my body was excess skin, what was fat, what was muscle. And it kind of, it obviously tells you muscle, but then everything else that's not muscle, it really just labels as fat. And so, the other thing is I've come so far, I really didn't need a reminder of like a fat percentage. So personally, I, I did it. And it's this is one of those things that that information was not fun for me. Thankfully, life kind of distracted me in the moment and, it, and I moved on pretty quickly. But I do understand how that type of information, seeing a fat percentage on there that you are not happy with. I mean, even the DEXA sand guy tried to console me afterwards going like, it's okay. That's not the highest I've seen. And I wanted to slap him <laughs> like, right. I'm fine with it. Why do you have a problem with it? But um, so for me, there it was kind of unnecessary. And I think it can do a lot of harm um, if you're looking at it from a fat perspective afterwards and talking with you and some other people realizing it is pretty inaccurate as far as like if you're just really hydrated that day or you're dehydrated your fat content muscle content skin it's not very accurate or reading those things somebody like my mom who previously had struggled with bone density um, some osteoporosis those are things that it's very valuable for her. And when I was talking about my DEXA scan, a lot of women who were in their 60s and 70s were messaging me saying they get one once a year just to track bone density. So if you're looking for a fat measurement, I personally would suggest staying away from it. I think it does more harm than good. Not even just for me, but I just don't think it's accurate enough from a fat perspective to really do any good. What does it matter even? Um, but from a bone density perspective and a bone health, I think it can be very valuable. Yeah, and I'm, I'm exactly on the same page with you. Most of my clients use a DEXA scan because they have bone health issues. So they need to check their bone density. And I've seen amazing results using a meat-based diet where my clients um, improve from osteoporosis to osteopenia. But when it comes to fat measurements, I would say majority of my clients end up becoming depressed after they get their results. And so, you know, like Laura has mentioned, um, the uh, just if you are dehydrated or if you have excess skin, all of those things can sway the results. And so you just don't want to get it um, just to see, okay, how lean am I now? Or, you know, what what fat percentage do I have based on, you know, other kind of standards um, just to then feel that I'm good enough or, you know, whatever other measurement you're using the fat for. Now, if you're using it for health reasons, I understand that. But in general, if it's just a kind of vanity metric, I wouldn't fully rely on it because in general, it can be inaccurate. But for bone density, even that you can argue if it's 100% accurate, but it is technically the clinical gold standard compared to others. And so for older women that are checking their bone health, I think it's a great option just to have, again, a baseline. I think something looking at fat content would be better just to use actual measurements and tape measurements and pictures. And, um, you know, there's there's the pinch test, apparently, but there's other things that you can do for fat uh, and to find out if you have any visceral fat, organ fat going on that are not uh, that. Moving on to hair minerals. So hair minerals, um, essentially, the whole hair mineral world, it's basically 
you are getting a snapshot of what is happening inside your cells for a period of time. And the average they're saying is about three months. So if you think about when you check your glucose, it is in the moment. Whereas if you get your A1C, it's generally for about three months of a snapshot. And so just like that, the hair mineral, instead of just getting your blood work of magnesium, calcium, potassium, you're able to see or how many minerals you have within yourself. Now, there are some people that don't believe that this is even science. Um, and then there's a whole, you know, pool of people that believe there is science. And so where I kind of stand with the hair mineral test is if you've been doing keto, carnivore, paleo, whatever diet you're doing, and you just don't find yourself balancing your minerals at that point, it may be worth doing. But I do not recommend people do it as soon as they start carnivore. Now, if you want a baseline, maybe but you're going to change your diet and you're going to eat more fats, more meats. And then it's like, how do you know where your minerals are going to land? So I do think hair minerals are ideal when you have mineral imbalances, you feel fatigue, but I think you should maybe wait at least many, many months into a diet and um, find a baseline. And when you're not feeling well, then you can get tested. So I have a couple of questions about this. It's not something I've ever looked into and nor have I thought about or even think thought about needing it. You mentioned if you are feeling like you're mineral deficient or you're having a mineral imbalance. So how do I know that? You mentioned fatigue, but what other things would indicate to me that I potentially have a mineral imbalance? Yeah, the biggest thing is fatigue, getting any heart palpitations. Um, At night, you're getting muscle cramps. Um, Sometimes when you're like going upstairs, your legs just kind of feel really heavy. All of these things are mineral imbalances. If you're trying, like I would first try Sole water, right? It's super cheap, super easy. Just dump some salt overnight, um, unrefined salt overnight in a glass jar, and then use like one teaspoon or one tablespoon of that in the morning with some water. And if that seems to do the trick and then do some like topical magnesium spray at night, if that seems to work great, but Sometimes people need a little bit of potassium, but it really depends on your cellular health to really know that. What what types of minerals are you going to be testing for? So I know you've mentioned magnesium, potassium. What other minerals is it usually testing for? So I, there's like over 20 minerals, I believe. Um, I think there's more than that, actually. So it's all the like the essential minerals. So like iron, chromium, potassium, magnesium, calcium. You don't have to list all 20. <laughs> No, this is not a test question. Yeah. So 20, I had no concept, right? If it was five or 20, like that's crazy. And then there's also the heavy metal. So if you have like an imbalance of mercury and um, aluminum, all the major heavy metals are also tested. And the tricky part of the hair mineral is if you don't get a good practitioner, or I wouldn't say good, but a more qualified practitioner, then you may focus on the wrong thing. So it's easy to look at all the deficient ones and go, oh, okay, I need some chromium, I need some iron, I need some selenium, I need XYZ else. But really what you want to do, just like getting to the root cause with gut health or you know whatever other root cause area you're focusing on, the major minerals are the first four. So it's like sodium, magnesium, potassium, and calcium. So I ideally like to focus on those first four. And then ideally, then the other ones can possibly balance out on their own instead of supplementing every single one. Now you may want to focus on certain foods, like if you're trying to get more selenium or copper in, you may want to eat a little bit more seafood, and then you could retest. And for me, I am not of the mindset where if you have any heavy metal, so if you're really high in mercury, I do not think you should be um, chelating heavy metals when you have an imbalance of good minerals. So some of the thought in the mineral space is that if you have some heavy metals, The reason why you may be having it is if you're lacking a good mineral, your body needs these minerals as spark plugs to get stuff kind of going on in the body. And so they'll use the heavy metals in replace of the good one because the weight is the same, the size is the same. And so it'll hold on on purpose until you can get the good mineral in your body. So once you start balancing the good minerals, the thought is that heavy metal minerals will then kind of reduce on its own and it'll be removed by the body. It's like the body's innate wisdom. But a lot of practitioners will see the heavy metals first and then they'll go and attack that. And I just, I personally think you should refuel and support the body before attacking the body. So this is some, this is part of the reason why I've never looked into it or done it is that a lot of everything you're saying, right, honestly, is kind of above my head. And so if somebody, say I did a hair mineral test and I got all of this information back and I had just like sent one in 
and they sent me a report with this information, I would be completely lost on reading the results myself and also then fixing the problems in any way. And so I do think one of the things I just want to reiterate that you mentioned is making sure that you are doing a test like this if you've tried everything else, you've been doing this diet consistently for months, you've tried the Soleil water, you've tried the magnesium spray, you're still having issues. This might be a test that you need, but make sure that you're doing it with a person that you, you know, a practitioner or a doctor or somebody that you trust to give you the accurate results and the guiding plan afterwards. Because if you're already feeling imbalances or you're feeling the results of those imbalances, you get a test results that give you a bunch of imbalances. And then you all of a sudden go attack that in a who knows what direction you honestly could make things a lot worse. So finding a trusted source to walk you through this is, is very important. And it's definitely not something somebody like myself would ever be qualified to do with you. Yeah, I, I mean, I went through a specialty training for this. And, and then I also, you know, talked with like, experts in the field, you know, I've done interviews with like Rick Malter and stuff. And it's not that simple. So it looks really easy to look at something and say, Oh, you have excess magnesium, you probably shouldn't be taking any more magnesium. But that's really actually based on your sodium potassium levels, and then your calcium, you actually are probably losing the magnesium, which means you probably need more. So it seems really straightforward, but it's not. Uh, one thing I'll say is that there's some people online that will sell lower cost um, hair mineral tests, but there are no results afterward. And then their essential goal is that, hey, the door to kind of walk into the hair mineral tests are really cheap. But then you have to, in order to find the solution, you need to take their supplements and their supplements are either really expensive or they're not even telling you the right way to supplement. So um, I've had a lot of people come to me after they've taken a test with someone else. And then they'll say, they've asked me to take $400 worth of just minerals and minerals are actually really cheap. They're like, can I get a second opinion with you? And so they have to then pay me to then review their work they've done with someone else, which then they're ending yeah. up spending more money, which is, and I've had more than 10 people come to me for that same issue. And that that is the unfortunate thing when you see the price point of any of these tests really low, you have to know you're going to, it's some other sales. So it's either going to be the supplements or some something else. And that's why you honestly get what you pay for. And I feel really bad, but I've had it, you know, charge uh, clients and other people that say, hey, I have a test from someone else. And I mean, I can't read it for free, right? Like that takes time out of my hands too, so. Yeah, to sum up, just make sure you have a trusted source for this. And also it shouldn't be a first resort. And it's, I don't think it's something you just need to do for fun. Yeah. Um, I think it's definitely a last resort based on your symptoms. Exactly. If you take Soleil water, if you tried all of those electrolyte supplements and you find healing with that, you don't have any of the symptoms I've mentioned. I really don't think you need to worry about it, honestly. Okay, so moving on, let's talk about stool tests while we're on this. Um, so I know that there are... <laughs> I'm sorry, you can't say stool tests and not have me laugh, Judy. Okay, I'm sorry. This I am not a nutritional therapy practitioner. You can't say stool... Okay, sorry. People got to poop in a box and send it to you. I'm sorry. It's really hard for me to deal with. Okay, moving on. Back to science. So, <laughs> Okay, so let's put on our mature hat. So um, the stool test... Um, so there's so many different kinds of stool tests, right? So there's the Viome and there's Thrive where basically they just kind of map out like here is what your population, uh, the microbiome looks like. And I will just be really honest. And while they are much cheaper and they're kind of interesting to look at of, oh, these strains tend to mean that you're fat or these strains typically mean you might have a heightened immune system. The thing is, the microbiome and all the studies around it are just very new. So there are truths to certain strains doing certain things, but there are also other studies that show that in excess, they might do something else. So the, the reality is we just don't know. So if you are doing it just to kind of see, well, I just want to get a pulse on my microbiome, I really do not think they're worth it. People can disagree with me. But if you have gut issues, if you have you're just not feeling well, that's when I think the real PCR, DNA slash stool tests, um, those are really, really powerful. Um, they are much more expensive on average. I think they're $400. So if you ask any of my clients, I rarely recommend it until they're not getting any better. That's when I will recommend um, 
doing like the PCR test, but these stool tests, basically, they will show you some of the major strains from the other companies I've mentioned, but they really focus on disease. So they'll share like pathogens, bacteria, virus, yeast, parasites, um, diseases in the gut, uh, susceptibility to allergies. So they'll show you like your immunoglobulin levels. They may show you bleeding in the intestine. So if you see dark like black spots in your poo, that might be occult blood. So blood in your intestines, which you are not going to get in these other tests. And then you can also see possible inflammation in the intestines or antibodies. Basically, these tests are really powerful if you are really sick and nothing is getting you better. And that's when I think a stool test will shine. But other than that, I don't think it's necessary to get these kind of more simple stool tests. I, I just, I, I, I got to pass. I'm sorry. I, I think it's important. Listen, I was actually somebody who was before I went carnivore and before I went keto and started losing weight, I was meeting with a colorectal specialist to talk about my severe hemorrhoids. I had a lot of fissures. I had a lot of rectal bleeding. So it is probably something I should have done back then to diagnose it. Obviously fixing my diet, I was getting ready to have this like major intestinal hemorrhoid, internal hemorrhoid repair. I should have scheduled it already. My doctors were basically telling me I was long overdue for it and it was just making things worse. I just couldn't take off the number of weeks that you needed to off of work. So I never scheduled the surgery because you need like weeks off of work and you can't sit for weeks. So that's too much for me to share about that. But um, I do understand and I'm somebody who came from a position of extreme like you're talking more from a microbiome standpoint. So obviously maybe that is a different uh, aspect and even not something I even realized you would be testing for. Um, but I think it can definitely determine like where the problem is causing. Is it an intestinal problem? Is it a stomach problem? So I do understand the value of it. I just, again, not something that sounds like, oh, I would love some more information. This sounds like fun for me. Let's do a fun little test. I, I agree. So the biome and the thrive and just kind of getting like the lay of the land that of, of a land that we don't understand. But the lay of yeah. the land like that, I feel like is a little un. I mean, for fun. And if you have the funds, why not? Right? I think it's always fun to kind of get these tests. But it's just not great information. Because some of the markers that they'll even say to increase, like you can't even increase it unless you eat certain plant foods. So then it's like, well, where does that leave carnivores? Right? So does that mean then, and then it just shakes your whole diet world. So and then if you have illness, then the tests that I brought up, um, so these like PCR DNA tests, these tests show like if you have ulcerative colitis, um, if you have inflammation in the large intestine, and those things, then if you have like constant loose stools, that's when these tests are really beneficial. But first, like even the um, hemorrhoids you were having, for me, like my clients, when they change their diet, oftentimes they never need to get the test. So one of my clients had really bad colitis and we were able to have her loose stool stop. So she never did it. Um, and then we went for maybe at least a year of her not taking it. And then she started getting worse again. So then we got the test done because she was doing everything that she was doing but she wasn't feeling well anymore. And so when we got it done, she had certain markers that were inflamed. And so then it made sense, okay, let's go to GI doc, and then you should work on these things. If you have severe illness in the gut, the stool test would be great. But other than that, I just don't think they're really necessary. Agreed. So moving on. So let's talk about hormone testing. Um, so I know a lot of people love to do like the Dutch test. So that kind of is a super fancy test of seeing a variety of hormones all over the place and before they become like the progesterone version and um, every other kind of fancy version of hormones. I honestly don't think, again, that test is pretty expensive. I even offer it. You've never heard me talk about it. So it's, again, it's just, I will only offer that if I really think that's the only option. But typically your blood markers of your thyroid are good indicators of what's going on. And then in terms of cortisol and insulin, if you get the blood work of that too, you can kind of get an idea of, you know, is your estrogen low or your progesterone? I don't know if you necessarily need to go all the way and get a full Dutch panel. Now, again, if you're really into that or you're just not getting your period, I mean, I have clients that have never gotten their period. I have never made them get the Dutch test and they got their period magically back. So I just think, again, I don't know if it's fully necessary. Now, if you have thyroid imbalances, um, I would get the full panel. But again, you just need to get blood work. You don't have to do other fancy thyroid tests. You could just, you know, make sure to get your full thyroid panel of TSA, total T3, free T3, free T4, and then like TPO for antibodies. And then maybe you want to get your um, 
like selenium and magnesium ferritin and um, like your iron panel as well. But in general, I think blood work is sufficient and it costs much less. And then again, you need to make sure and get a good practitioner that can read the thyroid panels based on a meat-based ketogenic diet. And just because your T3 is low, that they're not saying you need to get on thyroid medication because I see that so often and it's just not the case. Yeah. Several years ago when I, I mentioned, you know, when I got to my skinniest, I stopped having my cycle for uh, a few months and went to my doctor, had some blood work done and immediately was told like, your estrogen's too low and you need to take this medication, you need to take this hormone, you need to take this hormone. And I just was like, okay, thank you for the information. And I'm not suggesting other people do this, but I decided to just give myself some time and dig into research and talking to the people in the meat-based world. And I was able to stay carnivore uh, and make some adjustments in my own health and in my own life and be able to get my cycle back. And that's been great now for the last like two years. Um, But I do think without that knowledge, I wouldn't have known where to start. And so it was important for me in that time because I was experiencing um, uh, not having a cycle and I was experiencing some major mood swings um, and a lot of fatigue. And all of those for me were an indication that I had some hormone issues. And so once I figured out where those were, you know, I went to my doctor and got those. Now, Again, I didn't trust, I didn't go to a trusted practitioner. I just went to my normal doctor and obviously they were not educated in this space. Um, And so I chose to kind of make those adjustments on my own. And maybe if things didn't resolve quickly, I would have needed to do something else further. Um, But I was able to have great success by staying carnivore and just making a few adjustments uh, after that. Yeah. I mean, when I have clients and this is not diagnosis, but uh, when I have clients that have an imbalance in their thyroid, we will first work on macros before just taking medication. Now there's like natural supplements you can take that have maybe like a little bit of selenium and um, iodine and copper that may support it. But if I first work on the nutritional aspect of are they eating enough protein and are they eating enough fat? And then are they getting sufficient minerals like iodine and selenium and such, um, and then see where they are before just saying, okay, now we need medication. Because I have seen other clients that um, they just weren't happy that their thyroid markers aren't ideal. And then they're like, well, I still do technically have a little bit of fatigue. So then they start going to thyroid specialists. And I see over the months that they're increasing and increasing their doses of medication. In my mind, you weren't that bad before you started but you really were, you know, keen on the number. And I just wonder, you're, you said your fatigue wasn't that bad. And now you're almost on the highest dose or, you know, one of the higher doses, and you're not feeling any different. So is that the right way? And I'm obviously, I'm not a doctor, and I'm not going to go that route. But it's just, I sometimes think medication can be a band aid. you should go by Do you have your period? Are you sleeping? Well, is your hair normal, you know, and things like that more than just I need to track every single hormone. And if it's not balanced per the standard American diet, well, now I need to supplement every single thing they're recommending because it's usually not the case. But I think that's a good point. We talk about how the RDAs change and everybody thinks about the recommended daily numbers or what the standard, well, we all have myth busted the cholesterol thing and how we understand cholesterol is not the same. And there's other things, you know, like vitamin C may not need to be the RDA and all of these things we've believed. And yet somehow when it comes to other things, we can feel good, but there's still these numbers that we still hold to that, to that, you know, recommended daily yeah, I, 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 I'm mixing like food content and hormone, you know, measurements, but it's the same thing. Why do we believe other things are debunked and, and don't even question others? No, that's exactly it. What I tend to see in my practice is that most people or a lot of women under eat and they say, well, I'm eating to satiety and I'm full. And I'm like, well, you're eating 1100 calories and a lot of it's fat in cream. So you're not getting your nutrient profile. And so then their thyroid gets imbalanced. um, And then they're like, a low carb diet messed up my thyroid. And, and so then when I start having them eat more, they'll feel better. And let's say their hair grows back and their thyroid markers do look better. Um, But then they'll complain that they're gaining weight, which oftentimes is a struggle of mine, because maybe they've been under eating for so many years. But sometimes they do get better. And then they go to the doctor and maybe their T3 is really low. Um, and, and the, the doctor will say they need to get on some type of thyroid medication there is, but the problem I see 
in the bigger picture is that a lot of meat-based carnivore, keto, paleo folks, they follow so many people on the internet and so many different people say women need carbs. And then they say, go check this, go check that. And if it's wrong, then there's your sign that you need carbs, right? And so then women get like fear mongered, like, oh my gosh, I need to go check my thyroid. They, they're mentioning all the things that I have, or, um, I need to go check this and that. And then they, it's almost like they will their way to have things bad. And so then they're like, yeah, this diet doesn't work. And so that's like kind of a trend I see going on. But if you don't feel bad, I just, maybe you're doing more harm by, listening to way too many different opinions um, and not just staying the course and not, and then instead you're going to just get on medication, which you probably didn't want to in the beginning. Yeah. Okay. So moving on. Um, the next one is tracking your period and ovulation. Um, what are your thoughts on that, Laura? Like I, I don't have my clients really track, um, but I just make sure that my clients eat. And then as long as they're getting their period once a month, I'm happy with that. And a lot of my clients that were amenorrheic, they get it. and so. I have never been really strict. Um, and I know that there's like, oh, the 28 day cycles well, because then estrogen means this and then progesterone went higher. And then that means, that means you ovulate and therefore you should fast this way and eat these types of foods and eat carbs a little bit before you're, I'm sure there's a lot of science to all of that. I just don't think it's the thing that will move the needle that much. So for my clients, um, they eat very similarly throughout the 30 odd days and they usually get their period or they're not having as many hot flashes. So What's your thoughts on tracking your period? So obviously, if you're trying to get pregnant or if you're trying to correct a problem, then those are great things to track. It's a great thing to do. I I never have other than I think in the last six months, I downloaded an app that basically sends me a reminder. It just, it, I you know, you tell it how long your cycle is and it sends me a reminder like two days before. And it's just a good reminder for me to like, oh, don't be out and about or don't travel without bringing anything and like be prepared for this. Um, but that to me, that's the only reason why. Uh, it's just a good reminder. So I'm not like surprised being out and about and unprepared. Um, but other than that, I personally don't have an issue. We're done having babies. I am, you know, healthy in that regard. And so uh, I guess I just don't see, I, I have personally have never adjusted my fasting or eating schedule based on what day of the cycle I am in. I know that's also a big thing. I'm not saying there's not a valid point to it, Yeah. but I, I do tend to find that like I lose my appetite a little bit on the first couple of days of my cycle. And so I tend to just naturally fast around then, but I've never really paid attention to that until you kind of start talking about it. And then you go back and watch your own videos and you realize it. Um, right, right. I, the same thing from, from just talking about it and then rewatching my own stuff only because we're in this space. I notice I tend to like drop weight, um, the week after my cycle. So I lose weight then, but again, it's really just because I filmed several month long, what I eat videos tracking my weight. And then I noticed that that's just what happened. So yeah, my, I have clients that track, um, a lot of details and it's cool. It's cool seeing their data because then I could just, you know, reference their data as um, my N equals one, which I don't track at all. But typically you will become more insulin resistant, like the week before your period. And so this is when you may have cravings. Um, if you consistently eat the same amount of protein, if you check your blood sugar, you check your CGM, your blood sugars may go up a little bit more. Your sleep might be worse. Your breasts might get more tender. And then during your period, you know, a lot of people think, oh, I have cravings during my period, but actually it's the week prior and it's not the week of, but even with all of this, yeah, I guess if you're trying to get pregnant, um, if you're having an imbalance with your cycle, maybe it's more important to track. But I guess I don't have a ton of clients that are trying to get pregnant. So I don't focus on that as much. But I can see, like you said, um, when you, you know, if your goal is to have a baby, then for sure tracking makes total sense. So yeah, that that, that makes sense. Um, and it's pretty simple to do. And it's like really economical. But I think if you're a day or two late or you're a day or two early, um, I don't think you should overly worry that, oh, something's wrong. You know, it's just look at it in a year's worth of time, maybe or six months, and then see if you're consistently under or over and that may be hormonally related. It's similar to how everyone tracks their temperature. I get it. I get that it's a sign of your thyroid health, but you know, I... 
I can attest that I have a couple clients that have checked their um, temperature every morning and they're at the 98 point, but they're, they had to get on thyroid medication. So, I mean, it's not the only measurement and it's just, I can see people get so obsessive with these numbers. And I just think that's where we kind of just need to let the body do its own thing and stop stressing because that's what increases cortisol and cortisol is what affects us really. Okay. So moving on um, to calories, uh, tracking calories. So what, what are your thoughts, Laura, on this? I don't do it regularly. I have done it occasionally to diagnose a problem if I have something or to break a stall or to see what's going on. Um, I did it in the very beginning to keep me on track. It was kind of a good motivation to like check those boxes when I first started keto. Um, but I definitely is not something that I could have sustained this way of eating for three years if I had to track my calories every day. I just couldn't have kept up with it. There's times when I'm like super stalled. And so I will track when and what I'm eating just to see, am I under eating? Am I overeating? I realized after a time I was under eating, which is why I needed to switch to two meals a day because I realized that I was only eating around a thousand to 1200 calories a day. And that was causing a weight loss stall for me. And it was causing um, me to not feel great. So I think it's a great thing to do temporarily to bring awareness to something that's going on with you. Um, I think people can sometimes be surprised at that they're eating that many calories or more than likely that you're eating that few calories. Um, I often say I could eat a giant plate of eggs and bacon and add it all up. And it's like 800 to a thousand calories. And if that was my one meal for the day, it would, I would tremendously be under eating and over time, you know, we know that can slow your metabolism down. So uh, I do think that it can be a great temporary tool. I think if we, you know, live and breathe, by believing in it and being obsessed with it all the time, I think it can make things too overwhelming. And in the end, it just would make me kind of throw everything out. Yeah, I think that's really good the way that you've done it. I mean, even for me, I had a track initially because I never ate meat for a very long time. And so I didn't know how many grams were in any protein. And so I needed to track initially to understand and then that helped me to un also understand, okay, what is 70% fat in terms of total calories? Because again, I only tracked vegetables for like 12 plus years. And so it took me a while. But once I understood, I just stopped tracking because it became a pain, honestly, and I didn't want to also get obsessive. Now, like you were saying, it's really important to track when you first start. And then if you are having a stall or to make sure you're under not under eating, it's interesting because we think um, that under eating would never cause us to stall, but it can because when you are not sufficiently feeding your body, then your body is going to hold on to every single calorie it can. And your cortisol will run higher because your body is like, you need to get more fuel so that you don't die. And so, so if you end up eating more sufficiently, your body will then relax and be like, okay, I don't need to hold on to every single pound and you can actually lose weight. So Laura, do you track your macros at all in terms of fat and protein? I have maybe for a day or two just to see what it is out of curiosity or because people ask me. Um, but it's, I mean, obviously it changes all the time based on what I eat. Uh, if I'm going to have you know, today I had some chicken and some pork. So it's obviously going to be less today than it would be on a day when I had two ribeyes. Um, but typically I am around like 65 to 70% of my calories come from fat. And that even happens when I'm eating not ribeyes all the time, right? A lot of beef people don't realize like how much fat is still in a lean beef, um, yeah. any kind of lean steak like that. And so I really don't have to try super hard to eat enough fat. I personally have to try hard to eat less fat. Um, uh, in, but I don't really try to force it in one direction or the other. I haven't really leveraged fat too much. I do know originally when I was having my hormone issues, you know, several years ago, long before I was ever online or on Instagram in any way, um, I was only eating about a pound of meat a day and then about a, maybe a pound and a half on the days when I was doing super intense workouts. And I would take a ribeye, but I would cut off every little piece of fat that I could see. And so I know at that point I was just under eating in general because I wasn't getting enough fat. I wasn't eating enough meat in general. And I, that was 
this kind of circles back to what we talked about earlier, but that's a lot of what caused my hormone issues was just me under eating uh, in general. And so if I just eat what I want and eat what I enjoy, add a little bit of butter here and there, I don't track my fat to protein ratio. And I personally haven't had any issues. That's the key thing. I think if you are, so if you track your calories in the beginning and then get a sense of the macros and you, and then you need this, then you don't need to anymore because you feel good. Then you should just, I, I think at that point, maybe it's not necessary to track your macros, right? So if again, the bar will always be consistent stools, consistent mood, um, being able to sleep through most of the night, your hair is normal, your period is normal, or you're not getting the hot flashes if you're going through perimenopause, menopause. And then if those things are happening, then you really don't need to be tracking your macros. Now, if they're not happening, I would consider tracking your macros. So if you are really low on the fat, I would consider upping it just for a little bit. Because again, a lot of our hormones are made from fats, but then our there are like the thyroid hormone is also made from protein. So you just want to make sure you find the right kind of balance for you. So you want to just play with the macros for a little bit before you even go to the doctor. And then if you're still not feeling well, I would actually get your blood markers checked for maybe your insulin. There's a marker you can check called the LP-IR, and that's an insulin resistant marker. And that'll allow you to see kind of what your insulin is really doing. Um, um, there's some research that's been coming out or op-ed papers that have been coming out where they say that the insulin glucose, is not obesity is not just produced by glucose and insulin. And so, you know, I've looked into a lot of this research. I've been doing it, um, a lot of the research myself just to kind of understand what that all means. And I can see some of that being true. So if your insulin is always high and um, just even if you're not eating carbohydrates and you've been eating a meat-based diet for over a year and your um, your LPIR is still high, your insulin is still high, then you may have to lower your fat because then, you know, and or maybe lowering the protein. So you'll have to figure out what makes sense for you. You know, this kind of bleeds into the next topic about CGMs. But one interesting thing is that the fat macro can actually increase your insulin, but it just takes a lot longer. So it may take like 10 hours later and then your insulin will go up. So then the next day, even if you didn't eat a ton of protein, but then you check your blood glucose in the morning and it's and your glucose is high, that's probably why. It may be because you had too much fat. It's really important to check the macros when things aren't working and then also um, get your blood work checked to see where your insulin is and just all these other markers to see, are you metabolically healing on a carnivore diet? And if you're not, like if your triglycerides are still above 100 um, or even in the high 90s, and your HDL is not going up, and um, all these other markers, if they're not doing as well as you thought, then the dietary aspect has to change. I also think you need to be a remember that this is not an exact measurement either. A ribeye is not a ribeye is not a ribeye. The fat to, you can have three different ribeyes in front of you. They're all three going to have different fat to protein ratios, unless it's a lean grilled chicken breast, it's not going to be the same in everything. I've had ribeyes that are extremely marbled and fatty and some that are, look very lean. And so if you're inputting things, you also have to just account for the fact that meat is not an exact science like processed cereal that you pour out of a box that's going to give you the exact macros on it. Um, it doesn't really work that way. And so don't be so attached to those macros and numbers that you're, you know, just so obsessed with it. One interesting fact that Ted Naiman was bringing up for every calorie that it needs to be the most nutrient dense and that I believe in, right? So that's where I think a lot of people fell in love with liver. It's like, well, for every ounce I eat, I'm getting the most nutrient density, but you have to also remember that there's caps too. So that's where the toxicity can come in. So I really think my whole belief system in eating a rainbow of meats on a carnivore diet is the key to satiety. And essentially, if you're satiated, you will eat less. And that is probably a good indicator of how if you are stalled in weight um, on a carnivore diet, and you know, you're eating enough, you may want to switch up your nutrient profile, right? So if you haven't been eating salmon, salmon is so nutrient dense, I know it's not the most desirable food. I mean, I was pescatarian for 12 years. And I now I don't want to even eat fish, but I eat it because it's a 
um, it gives more of the like thiamine or B1 and other nutrients that or omega-3s that uh, beef just does not have enough of. And just pulling all these kind of nutritional ideas from other people, I think it's really powerful to make carnivore more successful when it's not working. Absolutely. Okay, so moving on to the CGM blood glucose. So um, I know that you not too long ago bought the ketone monitor, but before that you never really tracked. So what are your thoughts on the CGM blood glucose ketone monitors? I've never done a CGM after I think originally what I had first thought about you and I talked and I realized how inaccurate they were. Um, and then just, they can, I think they can be, I think some people I see, they have to be calibrated. I don't really know how accurate that is. I am somebody who gets really obsessive. And so to have all of that information, I think I would overanalyze it a lot. Um, so it's not something that I personally am, am interested in doing. I think that for somebody who is diabetic, Chris and my mom, it would have been a really helpful tool for them, uh, especially when they were first getting started. Um, we all didn't know that certain things had carbs in it in the beginning. I didn't understand that mushrooms and onions had carbs. And if I was to eat a big pile of mushrooms and onions on top of my steak, then that could potentially cause uh, a spike that I was not expecting. Tomatoes, like these are all things when you're very first starting out, I did not realize were going to affect my blood sugar. If you're having keto treats, I think it can be a good thing to test what that's doing to your blood sugar. But in general, um, I personally think I get a little obsessive with it. The ketone tracker has been a fun, like motivator for me. Um, I, but I still probably, Chris will tell you, I get a little too obsessed with it. And when I don't like the number that I'm seeing, I uh, maybe prick my finger too many times, but sometimes it has been motivating for me. If I like wander into the kitchen and I'm not hungry and I find myself opening the fridge to grab cheese, I close it and test my blood glucose or test my ketones. And I'm like, dang, those are good ketones. Girl, don't, you don't need to eat. You're not even hungry. Go sit down. So in a fun, like competitive with myself kind of way, it's great. But I also think I, even my, I can get a little too worried about what the number is um, and have to just ignore it for a few days. See, what's interesting about checking your ketones instead of snacking is you're trying to change the habit, right? So that's yes. where like that probably works. Um, so it's really interesting with the CGM blood glucose. I used the CGM when I first went keto. So I used it. I didn't know I had to calibrate. And so the markers were really off compared to my blood glucose. And so I wrote off CGMs. And then when I was doing more research, when it was becoming really popular, and the thing is, they, the scary thing to me is that there's like a metal, like literally a needle that goes into your arm. And then when you pull it out two weeks later, it's gone. And so I looked into, like, I read the in information um, insert, like, what is that needle? And they will not disclose it because it's, it's, they do something to basically hinder your immune system to understand that there's something there. That was one of my concerns about using CGMs is they don't have to share it with you because it's proprietary information so that they have a business. And I get that, but it's still scary. Like, why is that metal no longer on the piece, you know, that you put on your arm. And then secondly, it's like a Bluetooth that's in your body the whole time it's reading. So now if you're type one diabetic, I get it. So you know, this is the trade off. And it makes a lot of sense to use a CGM, you want to see trends, that it'll help you to know if you need to take more insulin or not. And then even when you're starting this diet, initially, it'll be great, right? It'll be a motivational tool to kind of keep going. But I think after about two weeks, I just don't see the benefit in using a CGM. I think there's harms in definitely using it. Um, like you said, it could get obsessive. And then there's also the price point aspect of it all. But also uh, the other interesting thing, like I was just talking about with fat is sometimes the CGM doesn't give you the full picture, right? So now if you have it for weeks at a time, maybe you can see the trends. But if you eat something, let's say you eat a lot of protein and you don't eat a lot of fat, well, your blood sugar will go up because of protein being broken down into sugars and then getting stored. But is that necessarily a, yeah, I was just going to say, is that necessarily a bad thing? Like, I don't think, I guess I don't understand why blood sugar going up after you eat is a bad thing. Not a bad thing. So it's just showing that your insulin's working when it's going down. So that's a very normal 
human process that should happen. So I like in general for my clients to kind of go up, but if you're having really up and down sugar, um, blood sugar readings from eating carbohydrates, that's where maybe the CGM is beneficial. But in general, um, you do want it to go up, but if it's going up like 60 points after a meal, which for me, it did when I was eating two pounds of meat. And that's where that was helpful for me. Right. So it really will depend on the range it's going up. You do want it to go up somewhat. If it doesn't go up at all, I don't think that's ideal either. If your insulin is too, too low, there can be damage in the body from that as well. So that's where some of the kind of new thought of the glucose insulin, um, that whole theory that it's not as ideal because you do want insulin to move. Now, if you take use a CGM and you're eating just like 90% uh, fat or 80% fat, and you're eating very little protein, and then you see that your CGM doesn't go up much, then you're like, look, look how healthy I am. But then the next day, or if you check your blood sugar, maybe 12 hours later, and it's gone up, and you have no idea why it might be the fat, because that's when it becomes insulogenic. And so these are new things that we're kind of coming across, where I find it so fascinating, right? So maybe these camps of people that are carnivore that are eating like 90% fat, or even 80% fat. And yes, maybe you need to eat that much in the beginning to heal your thyroid, heal your, heal your hormones. I'm, I'm starting to consider that it may not be ideal long term. Because one, if you eat the same fat all the time, it's just not as nutrient dense as protein, right? It's not going to have all the different minerals, all the different vitamins that proteins have. If you're not losing weight on carnivore, but you're eating 90% fat, it might be why it might. And if you then check your insulin markers, like the um, LPIR I was talking about, and you're, and it's higher and your triglycerides are actually high, then these are all indicators that the fat is no longer your friend at that point. And it's very new information. I think it's super cool. It helps understand that every individual person needs to figure out what amount of fat and what amount of protein will work for them. Because for everyone, I think it's going to be different. And I think that's where tracking can be beneficial or testing can be de beneficial. It's figuring out what works for you and tracking, not with a goal in mind, but with a reality. What did I do? Looking at the past and then saying, based on what I have done, how do I need to adjust things? It's not about tracking to do what somebody else is doing or to compare to anything else or to try to hit some things because you think you're going to meet a certain goal, it's looking backwards and saying, this is what I've done. How did I feel during that time? Okay, great. Now maybe I need to up my protein or maybe I need to up my fat or one of the other. And you can do something different at that point um, based on your own personal historical data. You can play with those levers that we often talk about. I can tell you that I've looked at hundreds of blood panels now, just from looking at numbers. I have some clients that are honestly obese. Um, and their blood sugar, their um, their A1C is better than mine. And so I could easily, without knowing any other data, I could have been like, oh my goodness, my blood sugar, um, my A1C is much higher than these people. But I know they're all their other markers, and I know maybe they are they have more fat storage, so they can um, they can kind of take in more fat, so therefore their A1C is lower, right? But for me, my A1C is on the higher side, and I hate that. But now that I have so much other context, I know it's not that bad. Yeah. Definitely. One thing I forgot to mention is the difference between CGMs and blood glucose is, you know, with the blood glucose, I mean, it's measuring the glucose in your blood. The CGM is actually measuring the interstitial fluid around your cells. So it's not even, that's why it's not a blood glucose monitor. It's the, the liquid around your cell that it's measuring. And typically there's like a 15 to 20 minute lag in terms of the glucose hitting there. And then also there are discrepancies. Um, it is not a hundred percent. So if you look at any of the inserts from CGMs, they recommend that if you think based on your CGM number that you need to take some more insulin, make sure to check your blood glucose first before you even do it. So understanding these things and these nuances, um, and then also understanding that fat can be insulogenic hours later, maybe even half a day later. And then if you see your blood glucose go up out of nowhere, that might be the reason. So therefore, then in that aspect, and if you eat a high fat version of carnivores, CGMs may not be ideal whatsoever for you. In terms of blood glucose and ketones, I think they're good in the beginning. And again, if you're not feeling well, always you can feel and track all these different kind of variations we've mentioned. But if things are working, I and I know it gets it's that shiny thing on the internet that people are now talking about. Something's not broken. I wouldn't go looking for a problem. Um, 
I just recommend doing blood work maybe one to two times a year and then tracking that and seeing where you are in your own healing. If your insulin is going down, your triglycerides are going down, your HDL is going up, your LDL is going down. I mean, there are people that say if your LDL is in the thousands, it's okay. I really don't think that's a true statement. I think that there should, yes, it's fine. Your LDL is high on a um, carnivore diet, but there should be a limit to how high it is. And again, I honestly think that if you eat too much liver, your LDL is going to go up. Your triglycerides might go up because you're eating too much fat. And at a certain point, your body's like, okay, that's too much fat. And now I have all this excess energy that's going back into your bloodstream. And we never think about that as fat, right? We think fat is, um, we can eat as much as we want, and it will not be insulogenic. And I mean, more and more research is coming out that it actually, there just might be a delayed response, but there still is a insulin response. So I know I just said a mouthful, but I really, I think, you know, the goal of this lifestyle is to just let, let it be that, let it be a lifestyle. Let's heal ourselves and then let's go live our lives and be with our families and friends. And, you know, like we say on our intro, get outside, get some fresh air. Like this should not be this obsessive thing that we have to focus on all the time. It should not be like what we do all day long because the goal would be to heal and then to move forward. Um, And so if you're not healing, these are all really amazing tools in your toolbox and levers and things that we talk about often that you can utilize depending on what's you're going through. Um, but if you're not looking for that, then just go live a happy life, <laughs> eat some meat. Yeah, I think that's really important. I mean, we are all genetically so different. I mean, one of the blue zones is the Okinawans who eat um, like 90% carbs and they're healthy. They have no metabolic disease, but they eat less and they're always out in the sun and they eat maybe two meals a day. So, but there are some people that can never eat that way and be healthy, right? So we have to understand that our genetics, our metabolic health, all of these things are so different coming into this diet. And while we want to compare uh, glucose numbers and this and that, I mean, I'm telling you from my clients, their markers are so different. I do see commonalities maybe in their BUN going up a little bit. But in general, there's no common number for everybody. And, you know, there can be really obese people with beautiful A1C markers. But um, I'm not in the obese range. I'm actually in the normal range. But my A1Cs, you know, closer to but not yet at the pre-diabetic range. So this is where you have to figure out what makes sense for you and not compare notes because you just don't know what everyone else has been struggling with or even their genetics. Absolutely. Okay, guys, I think we're going to wrap up. Um, If you found this episode helpful, please let us know. Let us know if you track other things and maybe we will um, include it in an upcoming podcast. We'll talk to you guys next week. Bye, guys. Thanks for tuning in to the Cutting Against the Grain podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please make sure to share and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. This helps us to share a real talk with more community members. You can also find my other podcast, Nutrition with Judy, on all podcast channels. You can also follow my content on Nutrition with Judy's Instagram, YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter. You can find Carnivore Care in paperback, ebook, and audio on Amazon. I also have a blog post and weekly newsletter with nutrition and wellness updates. You can sign up at nutritionwithjudy.com. You can find Laura on Instagram at Laura Eastbath. You can follow along on her daily stories and see some of her funny skits. You can also find Laura on her YouTube channel where she shares tips on living a meat-based lifestyle. If you're wondering how much meat to eat in a day, week, or month, Laura has you covered. She also shares how to make a perfect sear on a steak and how extended fasting looks like in real life. You can find her YouTube channel by searching Laura Spath. Thank you again for joining us. And remember, make sure to cut against the grain. Thanks for tuning in to the Cutting Against the Grain podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please make sure to share and leave us a review and leave any comments and questions on Apple Podcasts. We will read and answer your questions and comments on an upcoming podcast episode. This also helps us to share our real talk with more community members. You can also find me on my other podcast, Nutrition with Judy, on all podcast channels. You can also follow my content on Nutrition with Judy's Instagram, YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter. 
You can find Carnivore Cure in paperback, ebook, and audio on Amazon. I also have a blog post and weekly newsletter with nutrition and wellness updates. You can sign up at nutritionwithjudy.com. You can find Laura on Instagram at Laura Eastbath. You can follow along on her daily stories and see some of her funny skits. You can also find Laura on her YouTube channel where she shares tips on living a meat-based lifestyle. If you're wondering how much meat to eat in a day, week, or month, Laura has you covered. She also shares how to make a perfect sear on a steak and how extended fasting looks like in real life. You can find her YouTube channel by searching Laura's Bath. Thanks again for listening to the Cutting Against the Grain podcast. And remember, make sure to cut against the grain. Cut against the grain.